Hi, anyone and everyone. Welcome to Have You Heard About This Case. My name is Sam. And my name is Kelly. Today is the start of a two-parter episode on the curse of the Lee family. Bruce Lee was one of the most iconic action stars of all time, and his son Brandon would blaze his own trail, but each was said to be laboring under a curse. Before I share with you all, though, it's question time. Sam, what is it today? My question might be a good segue into this. Maybe not. Um, But have you had any paranormal experiences? That is a very good question. So I have never seen an apparition. I operate much like the folks of the day on Vibes. I operate on Vibes. And there was a portrait that hung in my grandmother's house in Wiscasset, Maine. I imagine it's still there to this day. It's one of our ancestors, and she's the most frightening woman I have ever seen in my entire life. And I was (laughs) visiting my... I visited my grandma every summer growing up, so I was still very young. And I think young people, like, the younger you are, the closer you are to the spirits. I'm a very superstitious person but yeah i agree with that from all like you hear so many stories about kids having more of a connection yeah yeah and i just looked at this photo it wasn't a photo it's like an oil painting and i was like that is the devil incarnate i hate that she's dressed as like a she's like a full-fledged like pilgrim woman she's got like a very strange hat on that looks like um, a cross between a bonnet and Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. And (laughs) I don't know if she requested from the painter that he should paint her looking extremely angry or if that was just her face. But either way, it turned into a painting of a very angry woman. And, yeah, they would tell me, like, that's your great, 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 great. And I'm like, I don't care how many greats, whoever they are related to me. That is haunted. And I would not. I saw, Like I said, I saw my grandma every summer. And I refuse to be in the stairwell that that photo hung in on the landing. I refuse to take those stairs in my grandma's house. I refuse to be alone in the room with that portrait. I was like... No, ma'am. No, sir. No, undecided. No, I that that photo is. Yeah, I still I can I can oh, see it funny. in my mind's eye. It's so spooky. That is the closest I've come. Yeah, I don't quite have. Yeah, I don't quite have anything like that at all. I've taken part in ghost hunts before. Well, I've taken part in one um, in my college. Because I have a, I went to a college that was founded in 1851, and it's literally built around a cemetery. Ooh, even better! Like uh, out of my my sophomore year dorm, quiet. I neighbors. had a beautiful view of the cemetery. <laughs> it, it was great. <laughs> I loved it. Um, but nothing came of that. But we we did spend I don't know probably four or five hours overnight in our library. We had all these different devices and recordings and nothing came of it, unfortunately. It's worth Um, a try. 
So I, I was like, I wanted something to happen. We had, it was like a professional team that came in and like taught us how to use the equipment and nothing. That sounds like Oh, it was fun. so much fun. You know, and I think we talked a little bit about it on Resurrection Mary, that both of us want to believe. Yes. I we always do. say that I am a skeptic who has a desire to believe. Exactly. I just need something to kind of prove it to me. Right. Because like, like that ghost hunt, nothing happened. I have nothing to say, yes, I believe because of this. Right. Exactly. I would definitely say that I'm much the same because like... I've never had, we stayed in New Orleans, we've talked about this off air, and maybe on air, we stayed in New Orleans in a, a haunted Airbnb, and I only found out it was haunted because I was on the patio that was attached to the room, because it's New Orleans, and New Orleans is fantastic, and I heard voices and looked down, and there were two haunted tours in front of my hotel room. And they were pointing at the hotel I was in and talking about how haunted it was. And yeah, and you were like I, live texting me during this. Yes. And I like, I need more. Keep listening. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I was live texting. And apparently, y'all, we... So the... If you guys have been to New Orleans, we were right next to the... There's an old museum that it's like a museum of... Um, pharmacology or something it's quite an old but both the buildings are quite quite old but what the ghost story people were saying I, that i was eavesdropping on was that the hotel we were in the building used to be connected to the like pharmacy next door that's now like the pharmacy museum and mm -hmm. all the babies that needed like medicine or they would die were like put in our hotel uh, i guess it, it sort of like a makeshift hospital but m basically what the tour guides are saying is that our hotel was full of haunted babies and <laughs> i was like this is my it chance is terrifying oh yeah that's uh, that's tragic it's yeah it's tragic and horrifying but i was like this is my chance it might happen right it might and there was a very weird stain on the wall that Ooh. I didn't have any luminol on me, but I did pay a good amount for this Airbnb, so I was a little annoyed. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, we were hoping we could find something in our Airbnb in Salem, just doing like research on the area. Yeah, but it didn't seem like it where we were. All right, should we tuck in and talk a little bit about the Lee family curse? Yes, I'm ready. I'm so ready, too. I'm really excited to share this. So, everyone, I'm going to talk a little bit about myself with you and hope that it give, helps give you context to my comments. First, as we, we've discussed on the podcast in passing, I've never shot a gun. Not a rifle, not a shotgun, not a handgun, not a BB gun, nothing. The reason I haven't is I think very common uh, among those of us who have never shot one, which is I fear guns. I'm afraid of them. Yeah. 
And I think that for some, they symbolize protection, safety, and assurance. And I totally understand that. However, for me, a gun is always immediately registered as the complete opposite. Like danger, injury, escalating situations, even the the potential death of another human. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I Growing up in an area so prominent with guns, mm-hmm. like I think I have a bit of a different view because I also very much look at them as a resource for food mm-hmm. because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I know many, many people who have either shot themselves on accident oh. or died from accidental shootings because of their hunting rifles whether right. it was cleaning or something like that right like i i, I know many people that oh, are part of that list that's so scary because yeah sam we i think we've talked about it a little on the pod in the past too yeah sam you're you're from a much different like the two areas where we grew up are much different in like gun culture i think mm-hmm because there just weren't... Yeah, you were a little more suburban than we were. Like, you still grew up in a very small town, but it was Yes, different. suburban. Very suburban. And there wasn't... The fact was, where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of territory to hunt in. Most of it was residential. Yeah, people went out in their backyards where I'm from. Yeah. You wooded area, yeah. Like, where we were in the mm-hmm. suburbs, like, it's, you know, everybody's house lines are there. Like, you, you can't just go a-hunting, you know? And so, but I completely understand that for some people, it's like, no, this is going to protect me. And I, I, I fully, I feel like that's just as valid as my fear of, of the gun. I agree. Well, you and I, we've talked about, we carry things on us walking Mm -hmm. around Chicago Mm -hmm. and it's designed for our protection and in reality designed for minimal harm because that's our point of view. That's why we don't want to carry guns we technically right. could in illinois right but we choose other things that still protect us right um, we both literally have multiple things in our purses at all times mm-hmm. in case of anything exactly and and just like growing up i was never around guns so i think that's another reason that i'm like oh and it just to me, it it largely represents, like, escalating situations. Agreed. If there's a gun around, I'm, like, if there's a gun around, I'm immediately on guard. Like, something bad could happen. And Brandon Lee's story is one that largely follows my greatest fear. When I went to college, I majored in stage management in the School of the Arts in, in theater. And I earned my bachelor's of fine arts as a stage manager. This is very specific and very niche, as I'm sure you can imagine. The stage manager in a theater setting is responsible for all rehearsals running as they should, all actors performing on the stage, all transitions of both sets and props that happen during the show, and preserving the director's vision after they leave. Basically running the show and making sure it is the same as rehearsals. I'd like to point out specifically, though, the props. Props in the theater world typically have an artisan who constructs the pieces known as the prop master. And they typically have 
two assistants, maybe, if there's a good budget on the show, and they help fill in rehearsal props before the actors get the real fabricated piece, because the props artisan is literally building these items. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Another member of the stage management team is called the deck chief, and their job at the beginning of every rehearsal or show, and at the end of every rehearsal or show, is to check out each prop to the prop table, and to check in each prop at the end of the night, ensuring that it is returned. This will be very important information in Brandon's story. Because also, each prop is tracked during the rehearsal process in a sheet that, when I made it, I, I, you know, I've, I've done all the positions in stage management. I, this year, have been a stage manager for 10 years and I've joined the Professional Union of Actors and Stage Managers, Actors Equity Association. This is where I've gleaned most of my weaponry knowledge from. But even the handoffs of those props are specifically tracked in a prop handoff sheet. Because you have to know where the item is going onto stage and where it's leaving stage so you know which table it should be on. You feel me? You know, yeah, you're creating sense. that that process, just that habit of you pick it up from here, you put it down here, so that you can pick it up from here again mm-hmm. and put it down here, mm-hmm. and and it's just a routine every show, right? And it becomes if you have what's called a handoff, you your character might need a prop extremely quickly. For that, a deck chief would have what's called the run sheet. And it would say something like, hand off this prop to this actor. And then the the member of the stage management team knows that they need to be standing in the wings on this side of the stage to hand off whatever prop it is to that actor so they can pull it right off and go back onto stage. Mm-hmm. So everything is quite meticulous to share that and that is on regular shows. So I'm about to share with you shows that involve weaponry. And in my time as a stage manager, I've worked on a couple shows that required weapons and it's a different process for sure. I've worked with fully fake dummy guns and with pieces that actually fire blank bullets. As you can imagine, I was much more comfortable working with the dummy guns. Yeah, understandably. My first experience with weaponry in shows was in the classroom, where I was taught to always, always, treat any weapon, dummy or not, as if it is a real loaded gun. Which I think is fair. I think it's extremely fair. I adhered to that I adhered to that rule stringently because as I said before, I'm afraid of guns and in this case I'm responsible for the actor's safety during the shows and the rehearsals. So mm-hmm. that's why I was always like hyper aware. And I would put this knowledge to use first in an opera that culminated with a character being shot three times in the chest with a weapon that fired blanks. If you've never operated with a weapon that fires blanks, 
it's alarmingly similar to the real weapon. It's it's pretty much just the real weapon, and the only thing altered is the blanks, from what I understand. Well, it's using all the same mechanics to yes, do ma'am. the same thing, just without firing Correct. the bullet, but just the casing. Correct. And... So I had just one ASM, assistant stage manager, for this show, and I made their duties to check every prop every night except for the blank gun. The blank gun was only to be handled by me, and each night before the show, I had to load three blank bullets into the stunt gun. I kept the bullets separate from the gun until the five-minute call to places. At that point, I would place the gun in its required drawer loaded with the three blank bullets. Luckily, I had an amazing cast, and I was able to show them the stunt gun in rehearsal. Another step that I always found critical was to tell all the actors in the show that this prop was never, ever to be touched by anyone but myself or the actress who had to fire the weapon. Yeah, least amount of hands-on at the least amount of risk. Yes, nobody touch it. And I think that's extremely important. You can't just tell... The one person who's going to fire the gun about the gun, you have to tell every cast member. Tell everyone. And they were great, and they never touched it. But I also kept the gun on its own prop table and the bullets on its own prop table that was only accessible to me. And we'll see here going forward that even blank bullets can be very dangerous, even though they are not live rounds. Mm Mm-hmm. I consider myself lucky that we had no mishaps, and each night I was able to check in with the actor just to make sure they were okay, and immediately talk to the actress where I would again take possession of the gun. At the end of every night, I made it my responsibility to unload the spent blank rounds, check that there were no other bullets in or near the gun, and check the barrel of the gun to make sure it was clean. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of extra precautions, but every one of those steps is required. Right. And this one, speaking of extra precautions, this one's even a little sillier. But like I said, you guys, it's you have to be careful with this stuff. You can't, as soon as people start horsing around with stuff like this is when people get very, very hurt. It can happen. And it like thinking, like hearing all these details, it's kind of crazy to think about too. Like the shows that have dozens of guns. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Like keeping track of all of that. I-, I was lucky enough when I was a teenager to kind of witness a um, filming of a big fight scene. Mm. Um, I didn't get to see everything super up close, um, but it was took place in the 20s and so it was a lot of like tommy guns and things like that mm-hmm, and hearing yeah. you talk about all these details i'm kind of thinking about what had to have going even more behind the scenes that i couldn't see or hear about Absolutely. in that filming and i want to talk a little bit of mo- a little bit more about guns and filming because as i'm talking to you guys i'm speaking from a live theater perspective but i've also now researched the movie perspective of this and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of that process on movie sets as far as theater goes 
The other show I worked on that included a weapon did not go as smoothly. Luckily, in this case, the prop was a dummy gun, and I trusted my assistant stage manager on the show implicitly, and I was able to pass control of the weapon to her. In the show, there is a pivotal scene where a supporting character commits suicide on stage. It had been determined in rehearsals that we would see the actor put the barrel of the gun in his mouth before a full blackout and a gunshot sound effect. Even knowing it was a dummy gun, I was shaken seeing this performer put a weapon in his mouth. Yeah, the thought of that is just terrifying. It is extremely scary. It is extremely scary. And it's, it's and meant to be. It is. It is. That the, in that moment. It's designed to be like that. Correct. Yes. We were we were creating a moment of live theater. That's the, the beauty of live theater. It's ephemeral. It, you know, only exists. It re-exists every night. But it's still, it. it's a pivotal scene because it does shake you in such a way. Mm-hmm. And... Once we received the final gun, which was, again, the dummy gun, I did what I always do, and I showed the weapon to all the performers and impressed upon them that no one is to touch the weapon, with the exception of my ASM, who would hand the weapon to the actor just before the scene, who had to use it. Right after the blackout and the gunshot sound effect, he was to meet my ASM in the wings and immediately return the dummy gun. However, earlier in the rehearsal process, when we had received the final dummy gun, I was called backstage by my ASM. She explained to me that she had seen the actor who handled the gun in the scene grab it off the prop table and wave it about before placing the barrel in his mouth like his character does. Needless to say, (laughs) I was livid. I had to give a very tense, very terse dressing down to the actor explaining the cardinal rule, again, that every weapon should be treated as a loaded gun. Yeah, and like, I understand like if you're you're young, you can kind of think of that as a joke. You might not True. grasp the full serious seriousness yes. of it. But at the same time, you're working in a professional scene, whether this is for school or not, this is a professional scene because in college that's your goal is to go through all of this to enter the professional world Mm -hmm. so you need to understand that that behavior is not funny exactly it's not something that should be messed around with right see yeah you've got you're exactly on the same page as me because you are in a professional setting we are in college but my school was connected to an equity live theater and you're training with the goal to become an equity performer to join the union and work on shows like this and if you behave this way it's it's like when you have a friend and they say something that's wrong and you're like i don't want my friend to go out into the world and keep saying this wrong thing so i'm going to correct them yeah, and honestly, like you and I do that a lot with our our podcasts. If like we feel like we pronounce a word wrong or yeah. the name of a city, you and I mm-hmm. stop and like try to check each other so that yeah. we're we're doing that right and showing the respect that comes with it. Right. Yeah. It's just it's a matter of yeah, it's a matter of professional behavior. You need to always tr- and and one of an- another cardinal rule, especially 
it from the deck chief's perspective is that you're never supposed to take a prop off the prop table unless you actually need it and you're about to go on stage. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the props tracking is ruined. And you guys, that's just that routine. That's the simplicity of same thing every day. Right. And y'all, you'll see why this has to happen and why I was I I was very terse. I was very upset with this actor because I was like, I'm not going to let him go into the world thinking that it's okay to behave this way backstage because if you want to be a professional, you can't. You can't do that. Yeah, like what the audience sees sees is what's on stage, but there's so much happens behind the scenes that you're being watched every moment. Exactly. And by the industry. And no matter how talented you are, if you play with things like this, people are not going to want to work with you. Because it's dangerous. Exactly. It's dangerous. And uh, so explained again, he was not to touch the weapon until the handoff from the ASM and not to touch it again after he returned it to her. And uh, like I just said, I tell this story to share that things can happen on the set. You need to know what's going on around you to protect not only the production, but more importantly, you need to preserve all of your performers' safety. And this brings us to the tragic story of Brandon Lee and tangentially his father's story and the Lee family curse. So this is a true crime podcast, obviously, that deals with murder. In my opinion, the death of Brandon Lee is a homicide by negligence. So we'll discuss a little more about the rules surrounding firearms on set in this episode. But first, let's get to know Brandon Lee. On February 1st, 1965... Brandon Lee was born to Linda Lee Caldwell, nay Emery, and martial arts and movie legend Bruce Lee in Oakland, California. Not surprisingly, as a young boy, Brandon started learning early martial arts from his father. Grace Ho, Lee's grandmother, said that by age five, Brandon could kick through an inch of board. Oh, wow. Sheesh, right? Due to Bruce Lee's Hollywood stardom, the family split their time between Hong Kong, China, and the United States, depending on which was working for Bruce's career. The younger Brandon would accompany his father to movie sets and became interested in following in his father's footsteps to become an actor. Yeah, and that's a story that you hear kind of frequently is Mm -hmm. you, you see your father being this icon that you, you want to follow in those footsteps and you, you want to do the same thing as him. Right, right. Or you see him, you know, doing the moves that he taught you in practice on film and, and you want to do it mm-hmm. too. Yeah, like it. So he was very much bitten by the bug. However, Brandon's life was about to dramatically shift. On May 10th, 1973, Bruce Lee suddenly collapsed on the set of Enter the Dragon in Hong Kong. We're going to talk about Bruce Lee's death a little bit because it's been examined several times and studied even as recently as last year. It also has a profound lore around it concerning the Lee family and Brandon. Bruce's passing would spread like wildfire rumors through Hollywood. 
We'll talk a little more about the curse later, but the Genesis was in play even before Bruce Lee's birth. So to learn a little more about Bruce, he was born in San Francisco in the year of the dragon, November 27th, 1940. Oh, his birthday's the day before mine. Oh. He was destined to revolutionize the kung fu action genre of cinema. His family moved back to Hong Kong when Bruce was only three months old. As he grew up, it was said Bruce found himself in a lot of street fights, and this led to his father believing Bruce needed to be trained in the martial arts. During his teenage and early adult years, Bruce began featuring in Chinese films. Following in his own father's footsteps, his father was an opera singer. Oh, see, there it kind of goes again. Exactly. And around and around we go. The curse began the way they do in many stories, with something extremely tragic bringing it on. His parents, Bruce Lee's parents, had previously given birth to a son, but the child had died. When Bruce was born, his parents were said to always think something was after their son. Oh. Isn't that sad? It's just like sad. Yeah, they, they always thought something was after him. The family referred to Bruce as Siphon, or Small Phoenix, in private. This is considered to be a girl's nickname in China, so why did the family refer to Bruce Lee this way? The answer lies in both the tragedy of losing their first son and their belief in tradition. Since their first child was lost, it was said if they didn't refer to Bruce by a male name, then it would confuse the spirits that they thought might steal his soul. Oh, see, that's like sweet and really sad. Exactly. But like they did it to protect him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wanted and I, I totally see that because you lost your first son. That's horrible. That's that's and tragic. And you don't want anything to happen to your other son. No, no. And I came across in my research that Bruce Lee's mother was very, very spiritual and very, very much believed this, that she could keep her son safe if she referred to him this way. And that's that's a simple thing. It, it, like, yeah. With that goal, like there, there's a lot of underlying conversations that can be had with that. But with that goal, and especially in that time period, that was a mother just trying to protect her son. Yeah, I think that that shows how much his parents loved him. Mm -hmm. And Bruce, his street fighting ways would still follow him through his adolescence. And after a particularly violent fight where Bruce was said to have viciously beaten the son of a feared triad family boss... The triad is like the Chinese mafia. The police were called in. Bruce's father believed that his son's life was in danger. So he sent his then 18-year-old son back to his place of birth, San Francisco. He was to stay there with his older sister, Agnes Lee, who was already living there. Okay, so at least he's still with family. Yes, his sister Agnes is already there. And, well... In America, Bruce began teaching martial arts to Americans. Oh, nice. Makes sense. He also met and later married Linda Emery, and they had two children, Brandon and Shannon Lee. While taking part in several demonstrations at numerous karate championships, 
Bruce caught the attention of TV producers and landed his breakout American role in the show The Green Hornet. After the show, Bruce was said to be frustrated with only receiving smaller roles and not really making progress. So they returned to Hong Kong, where he starred in his first leading role in The Big Boss, the movie was called. The film was a huge success and catapulted Bruce into superstardom in China, and several more film roles were to follow. Yeah, it may have been easier for him to get roles because of connections with his father and kind of break into the industry easier, which makes sense. Yeah, perhaps. And also, I sh- I'm remiss in not acknowledging that this is Cantonese as well, that these movies are done in. So both Bruce and Brandon were bilingual in mm-hmm. English and Cantonese. And Fist of Fury and Way of the Dragon were his next two films, and they both became huge hits. In 1972, Bruce began work on his next film, Game of Death. This was a film he wanted to show audiences to help them understand the deep and meaningful connection you could have to the martial arts. He filmed scenes and had several minutes of footage ready for editing, but before he could complete work on the film, Bruce was approached by Warner Brothers, who offered him a chance to make a big American film. Bruce had been waiting for this break for years, so he returned to America once more to work on his new film, putting the movie Game of Death on hold. This big American movie was Enter the Dragon which began filming in early 1973. Enter the Dragon was completed, and Bruce decided to go back to Hong Kong and take some time off before returning to work on Game of Death. Sadly, Bruce Lee would not live to see his major American success in Enter the Dragon. I actually didn't know, because I've never really, I don't think I've fully seen a Bruce Lee film. I've seen a lot of clips and I've probably seen at least one combined with all the different clips I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't quite realize that that was his first like big American yeah. film. Yeah. Because you just you you know how popular he is and how right. so many people love him. I just kind of assumed that some of the others he was in would have also been big American films. Right. It's crazy because and it almost seems to speak to this whole i don't believe in curses you guys like i don't i'm not i'm a skeptic but i want to believe but i don't want to believe in curses i don't i don't think they're real i think that there are some coincidences though and one of them is the extreme posthumous success that both of these men had mhm and I, I agree. I don't believe in curses either. We were talking about this off air. I'm a diehard Cubs fan. I don't think there's a curse. <laughs> like, I, I can point out things where things went wrong in games that should have gone wrong and shouldn't have gone wrong. None of those are in relation to a curse. There's no, there's no goat. <laughs> like, none of that. Yeah, and I'm a little superstitious, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'll still, if I spill the salt, I'm still throwing some of it over my left shoulder. Like, you know, I'm not a fool. 
But I don't believe right. that a family just carried this curse. I do think yeah. it's I do think it's a big coincidence that both were so celebrated posthumously, and that's so sad. So prior to his death, Bruce Lee had been experiencing headaches and even seizures, which resulted in him being placed in the care of Hong Kong Baptist Hospital. Doctors there diagnosed a cerebral edema, and Lee was administered a drug called mannitol to reduce the swelling in his brain. I feel like I've heard of mannitol, but I don't know what it is. I think it's a common swelling reducer. Okay, I feel like I've heard the name before, but yeah. zero relation to what it does. Yeah, it's it, it, what it what it did in this case was they were administering it to reduce the swelling of the brain because his brain okay. was literally yeah, the cerebral edema that they diagnosed with is literally he has swelling in his brain. So mm -hmm. and that's of course what's causing the headaches and the seizures. Yeah. Unfortunately, these symptoms would return with deadly consequences. On July 20th, 1973, Bruce Lee was having, by all accounts, a normal day. He had a conversation with his wife, Linda, saying he was to meet his producer friend, Raymond Chow, to discuss a script and to work at 2 p.m. He made no mention of headaches or showed any symptoms to Linda. According to Linda, Chow and Lee worked until around 4 p.m. and then went to the home of Lee's colleague, Betty Tingpei. Raymond, Bruce, and Betty were getting together to go over the script for a movie, and once his part was completed, Raymond Chow took his leave. This is when Lee began to complain of a headache to Betty. And I can tell you, for headaches... And this is obviously so different than anything I've ever experienced, but they can come out of nowhere and be very severe mm -hmm. within minutes. And I think that's exactly what's happening here, because this is obviously a recurrence of what's happening. So I imagine yeah, I, I've had like within 10 minutes, I'm fine. And then mm -hmm. I have a migraine like mm -hmm. that's that can absolutely happen. Yeah. And so he says this to Betty. And Betty gives him the painkiller equigesic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Dr my drug folk pharmacy friends send yeah, me. I've never heard of that one. DM me how to pronounce equigesic if I'm saying it wrong. This pill includes both aspirin and the tranquilizer medicine meprobamate. Oh, hey, I haven't heard of that one either. That sounds intense, though. I had not heard of that one either. So there's a chance that these could be, because remember, this is 73. So there's a chance. Mm -hmm. I didn't look at it. I don't know if it's even legal anymore. Well, I know aspirin is not used in the, the same typical ways as frequently anymore. Um, it, It's often not used for like general pain like it used to be. Okay, never mind. It is still legal. Okay. I just wanted to check and see, like, is equigesic still legal? <laughs> Can we still Yeah, use you never it? know with, like, that Appear time period to now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because they could have figured out, like, oh, this is bad. Mm -hmm. But either way, she gives him the painkiller, and it is this sort of dual-acting medicine with both 
the aspirin, and the meprobamate. At 7.30 p.m., Bruce went to lay down for a nap, which makes sense because the meprobamate is a tranquilizer. So Mm -hmm. he's probably tired. when you have a bad headache, lying in a dark room is typically beneficial. Exactly. But also, I just feel like it's the worst because, like, with head injuries, from what I understand, you should not lay down and close your eyes and not because you're in like the danger zone you, that's well, like what i know swelling like that's that's yeah. often like concussions can cause brain swelling and that's when mm-hmm. it gets scary mm-hmm. um, and that's the exact thing that you do not want to be doing right but again he had the tranquilizer in the medicine and maybe it made him tired and he went to lay down for a nap when lee never came down for dinner Raymond Chow returned to the apartment to wake him, but he was unable. A doctor was immediately called who attempted to revive Lee for 10 minutes unsuccessfully. The doctors had Lee sent in an ambulance to Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Unfortunately, he was declared dead on arrival. Lee was just 32 years old. Oh, that's so young. Can you believe that? 32. That, that, I'm 33 right now, and that that's hard to believe. Yeah, I'm 32 right now. But listen to this. An autopsy of Lee was performed, and it found that his brain was considerably swollen from 1,400 to 1,575 grams, which is a 13% wow. increase. And if yeah, those... If those numbers were confusing to you, they were confusing to me, too. So I did a little more research. For reference, an average male's brain weight at 65 is approximately 1,300 grams. And he's half that age. Right. So Lee's brain is undeniably swollen, exceeding by far the normal weight for a man more than double his age. Not good. Yeah. The autopsy also found the equagesic in his system. When doctors announced Lee's death, it was officially ruled as, quote, death by misadventure. Misadventure? Right. Odd. I had not heard of That's that very one. very odd phrasing. Yeah. Right. Right? Odd. Like, that sounds to me like, like a natural death, like on a hike. Or something like that. Like misadventure being like something active that was an accident. Yeah, you tripped and fell on your mountain bike and and hit your head. But Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's why we're talking about Lee's death. Because this is the first thing that a lot of people start chit-chatting about. A lot of rumors are spreading. Things are happening. But Donald Teer, a forensic scientist who had overseen thousands of autopsies was assigned to Lee's case, and he came to his conclusion of death by misadventure by determining that it was due to Lee's cerebral edema suffering a reaction to the compounds present in the equagesic. Interesting. Which, I, I, I can understand that conclusion. Like, obviously, I don't know that medication. I don't know what's in it and kind of how it would react mm-hmm. to what he was already going through. But... The misadventure, that's just that. I think that word is throwing me off. It should be accidental, it sounds like, based yes. on his conclusion. Yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's odd. It's odd. 
and and like anything odd, people will run with rumors. And also, people started talking and saying the wrong things. Like in 2005, Raymond Chow first discussed Lee's death in an interview. And he stated that Lee had died from an allergic reaction to the tranquilizing drug meprobamate that was in the pill he took. Chow also noted that this drug is common in pain relievers. Reminder, this is just Bruce's friend, a movie producer, talking. So I'm going to stick with Donald Tear, the forensic scientist's assumptions. Well, it also sounds like a slight, like just a one part wrong. Like just the word allergic is what sounds like is wrong in that. Mm-hmm. Because, exactly. yes, yeah. he did technically die in a reaction to the drugs mm-hmm. that were in that pill that he took. But it wasn't, well, it, it, it likely wasn't allergic based on the forensic scientists. But it, he's kind of saying the right thing with, like, one wrong piece to it. Right, right. Because it really, what, it was a chemical reaction between the... Between the ingredients. And he also brings up the what the reason I, I called out his comment in particular is that he also says that he was allergic to the meprobamate. And the forensic scientists never said that. Nobody else ever said that. Like nobody said right, that. Right, it's like the drug as a whole. Right. Like, based yeah. Based on what the forensic yeah. scientist is saying. Yeah, the forensic scientist said basically it's it's this pill as a whole interacting with his cerebral edema, like the mm-hmm. swelling in his brain. And so he wasn't allergic to meprobamate. Uh, Raymond Chow just, like you said, is off by like a touch here. Yeah, like he's on kind of the right path, but took it slightly veered off a little bit. Right. And I imagine it was A, tough to talk about. Because that's his friend. And B, it was in 2005 that he spoke about it. Lee died, at that point, like 30 years ago. And he's not an expert. No. Yeah, he's he a He might not producer. fully understand exactly what had happened. But as we were just kind of saying, like, he got the general gist of it. Mm-hmm. He understood. He, under- he understood it was bad. And... Mm-hmm. Another, we have another player here. In 2018, biographer Matthew Polly worked with medical experts in determining the theory that the cerebral edema that killed Lee had been caused by overexertion and heat stroke. Heat stroke was not commonly treated at the time, and it was poorly understood. In addition to that, Lee had his underarm sweat glands removed in late 1972 in the apparent belief that the underarm sweat was unphotogenic on film. I didn't know you could have sweat glands removed. You can. You can. I, I have heard of it, but also it's very dangerous. I say it sounds very unhealthy. It's very dangerous. And I also would just like to point out here that that is projecting thoughts onto Bruce Lee that he never confirmed. That's just Polly mm-hmm. theorizing. If Polly is theorizing, like, there's no doubt that he had the underarm sweat glands removed. But, but Polly, yes, Polly is theorizing it was due to him thinking of his films. It could have been for a multitude of reasons, but whatever those are, removing sweat glands, it's not 
typically a good idea because that's how your body is obviously expressing hydration, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I actually, I have a good friend who doesn't sweat ever. Mm. Um, she's she's incapable mm. of it. And it's very, very hard for her to regulate her temperature. Uh-huh. And it's it's sometimes like I go visit her and it's like it's freezing in her apartment because she just overheats so fast mm-hmm. that I just get in the habit of like packing extra clothes to layer when yep. I'm hanging out with her. Yeah. But that's also so more important that she can regulate her own temperature by keeping her place really cold. Right. Because when she overheats, she gets really sick. Right. And she can easily suffer from heat exhaustion because of it. Right. And that's that's obviously something that I'm happy to bundle up an extra sweater and have her go through anything close to that. And really, that is exactly what should have been done for Bruce. More should have been done, I think, for him. The thing is, Bruce Lee, I'll talk about it a little bit further here, but he was obviously an extremely committed, incredibly talented martial artist and was known to work extremely hard on his films. And that's something he passed down to Brandon. But these are long hours on a film set and he's performing martial arts and Polly further theorized that the removal of these sweat glands would have caused Lee's overheating while practicing martial arts in high temperatures on May 10th and July 20th. According to his theory, this resulted in heat stroke, which exacerbated the cerebral edema. So, it basically the exact opposite of what your friend is able to do, like regulate your own temperature, you know, like choose where you are for your health. Like, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just what you need to do. Like, right. I, I had to do it with my migraines when I was younger. She has to do it for heat. If we're, we're out at a park or something, there are times that we need to leave because mm-hmm. we need to, have her feeling good all day that's so much more important right than her feeling absolutely terrible and then the rest of our day is ruined right and and with this i don't know how much of it like i i don't know the very specifics of what the rules were in 1973 as far as movie sets goes and breaks and trailers and that kind of thing. Yeah, like work code and all of that. Yeah, regulations. What I can tell y'all is that right now, in a live theater production, in a union live theater production, an actor can work no more than an hour and 50 minutes without being given a 10-minute break. Oh, really? That seems like corporate world's very different. Um, yeah. But that seems very short period of time. But also, you, typically as an actor, you're using your whole body. You're, yes, correct. Just like martial arts. You're exerting a lot. Just like martial arts. Yes, you are exerting an, a, an incredible amount of energy, usually doing an incredible amount of dancing. And if you... The only other way to avoid this sort of 10-minute break is you can also have a union actor work... 55 minutes and then take a five minute break. 
Okay, so you kind of get the choice. If that works better with your rehearsal schedule and where you're at in the process, like if you Mm -hmm. think, if you're thinking like everything's going well and you can probably just catch a 10 later, you, you have to make that decision essentially at the 55 minute mark. Because right, it has to be one or the other. Yes, correct. So I, but I can't tell you, uh, that's just background from what I know. I can't tell you what it's like on movie sets or what it, specifically what it was like on movie sets in 1973. So mm-hmm. those might be questions that none of us would know. But that is, that is the theater rules. But in the still studied death, the December 2022 issue of Clinical Kidney Journal, a team of researchers looked at the various theories and, cl- and concluded that the fatal cerebral edema was brought on by hyponatremia, which is an insufficient concentration of sodium in the blood. Oh, interesting. It's very different. Yes, and they noted that Lee's risk factors included were his excessive water intake, an insufficient solute intake, alcohol consumption, and use or overuse of multiple drugs that impair the kidneys to excrete excess fluids. His symptoms prior to death are also consistent with fatal hyponatremia. Do you know what the multiple drugs he was on? Or, or like just over the counter, potentially like pain meds for headaches or things like that. The some of those over the counter drugs, especially if you're taking them daily, can really impact your kidney function. Yes, ma'am. And, and if and you that... become like routine with it, which is easy to do if you're, especially if you're so active and mobile like he is mm-hmm. exactly. he might have always been in some sort of constant pain from his work exactly like the body the body is might just be tired you know and that's a big reason like why aspirin isn't as popular as it used to be like it still has some great use but people started taking it every day just for their daily pain and it became a real issue Ooh. okay so just did a little Googling because I thought that was a very good question. You know, the drugs, were there any? And I I don't want to get too deep into it because, again, we're just talking about the Lee family curse and Bruce Lee is an icon of cinema. However, Bruce Lee was also, according to my article I'm looking at right now on faroutmagazine.co.uk, Bruce Lee had an alleged dependence on cocaine. According to some recently unearthed letters between Lee and his close network of friends and family. Which I I wouldn't say is outrageous to think that given the time period, given his work ethic and wanting to always be on top of his game and and people can use cocaine to do that to have that energy and right. to really be active during that apparently it was found in a trove of like his letters that has recently according to this article uh that was in t- 2021 
in 2021, they found like a stash of old letters from Bruce Lee. And one of them is is referencing to his cocaine addiction. And in another there, it, it mentions taking several different kinds of drugs, but nothing like heroin, nothing like any, nothing, nothing that we would truly consider like schedule one top tier real bad i i mean any of these drugs aren't good for you but it was said that he he did take cocaine and he may have had a dependence on that but we don't know and And cocaine was just prevalent at that time yeah it's true it was the 70s and what really what really caused his death was the hyponatremia i believe with all these theories that the the insufficient concentration of sodium in the blood. And I also think the kidney, it impairs the kidneys to excrete excess fluids. And you've also removed your sweat glands, which is a big area of excreting your fluids that you've just removed. Mm -hmm. Especially like your underarm sweat glands so specifically. And I don't understand, like I'm don't pretend to be a doctor. I don't know how those two things work like your kidneys in relation to your sweat glands in relation to all of that but i imagine it would be damaging to remove those and could contribute to something like this Mm -hmm. so not to derail our story here but bruce lee's death would have a dramatic effect on the life of his son brandon who was just eight years old not only would he lose his father but he became the inheritor of a great legacy bruce lee's death was gossiped about so much that theories became wild including murder involving the triads which is an organized crime organization to a supposed curse on both bruce lee and his family the myth about the curse became deeply embedded in hollywood lore and we've discussed it a bit and we'll discuss it more but brandon's story is what's more important right now After Bruce Lee's death, Brandon and the family moved back to California from Hong Kong. In 1974, at just nine years old, Brandon Lee began studying martial arts with one of his father's students, Dan Inosanto. Later, still at a young age, he also trained with Richard Bustillo and Jeff Imada. When Imada met Brandon, he was in his teens, and he said that Lee, quote, struggled with his identity. He was also struggling and troubled because the dojo where he trained included large photos on the walls of his father. That has to be hard. Yeah. According to Amada, this spurred Brandon to leave martial arts and he instead took up soccer, which seems perfectly reasonable for a young man who's lost his famous father to want to get some distance from his grief. Exactly. Yeah. And still put it into some sort of physical outlet. Mm-hmm. And I imagine practice must have even been emotional for him, just considering it was something his father was so beloved for and something that they did together. Mm-hmm. I imagine that that must have been really hard. Yeah, absolutely. But Amada and Brandon were destined to meet again, though, as, like I said before, Brandon had truly been bitten by the acting bug after being on set with his dad. And Imada would work as a stunt and fight coordinator in several of Brandon's soon-to-be-made films. However, 
during this same time, even though he was having a lot of success in extracurricular soccer, martial arts, Lee was said to be a rebellious high schooler. In 1983, just four months prior to his graduation, he was asked to leave Chadwick School, which he attended, for misbehavior. Lee went on to receive his GED that year from Mira Leste High School. I'm not sure what Brandon did, but I think it must have been extreme to expel him only four months from his graduation. I was going to ask, like, do you have more details on that? No, I haven't found why in my research, so maybe the school was just being hard line. I don't know. But yes, four months prior to his graduation, they booted him. That seems little harsh but yeah brandon kind of knew where he was going he continued to pursue his studies in the world of acting he went to new york city where he took acting lessons at the lee strasberg theater and film institute he then went to emerson college in boston massachusetts and majored in theater oh nice i've heard of emerson yeah me too i think i actually have a friend that's been that attended In his time at Emerson, Lee appeared in several stage productions. Notably, he was part of the Eric Morris American New Theater, where he performed in John Lee Hancock's play Full Fed Beast. Friend and screenwriter Lee Lankford said Brandon, quote, did not want to follow in his father's footsteps. Eventually, he gave up to be an action star like his father. Lankford also said, though, quote, they were grooming Brandon to be a big star. Well, that sounds like he's wanting to do his own thing that mm-hmm. was similar to his father. Like, he's mm-hmm. still technically following in his footsteps, but he's making it his own. Right. And he, Lankford further gave insights into Brandon's life, saying that he was, quote, a wild and weird friend. Lankford said, instead of knocking, Lee would, quote, just climb up the wall of your house and go in through your window for the fun of it. See, I feel like we've all had that one friend, at least at some level in our lives. Right, right. And and Brandon was sort of that guy. Like, oh, I can probably scale that wall. And he sure could. I was telling Sam off air that through this research, I've just fallen in love with Brandon Lee. He, I already really, of course, liked him, but he just seems like the kind of performer I would have wanted to work with. Yeah. 1985 found Brandon returning to Los Angeles and working as a script reader. During this job, he was noticed by casting director Lynn Stallmaster, and she called him to audition. It was a success, and he received his first credited acting role in Kung Fu the movie. This was a big deal. Because the television-length movie was a follow-up to the 1970s television series with David Carradine returning as the lead. So it was someone that was already established, so they knew an audience was going to see him. Exactly, yes. And Brandon didn't just land a role, he landed a main role. Lee was to play Carradine's son. Nice. On set, Lee reconnected with Jeff Imada, who was working in the stunt department. Nice to probably see the familiar face. Exactly. Someone he's known for quite a long time. And Leah was said to have told Amada he had to be talked into accepting this role. 
Well, that's that's really directly following in his father's footsteps. And mm-hmm. that had the, to be a big consideration for him, I'm sure. Yeah, the martial arts aspect of the movie did not appeal to him. And Brandon was said to avoid any connection with his father's genre of film. Yeah, it's just a constant reminder, I'm sure. Exactly. On February 1st, 1986, Kung Fu the Movie was aired on ABC for the first time. Lee felt that there was some justice in being cast in this role for his first feature, since the TV show's original pilot had been conceived for his father. See, that that's something special. Right. That he was able to step into that. Exactly. So, yeah, it wasn't even meant to be Carradine at first. It was meant to be Bruce Lee. And so and you he said he was sort playing of... his son in the in the, the movie. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of taking up the banner here. I think that's very incredible. Also in 1986, Brandon went on to appear in Ronnie Yu's Hong Kong action crime thriller Legacy of Rage. This was Brandon's first leading role but it was said that the process was not a pleasant one. Apparently, Lee and Yu did not get along during the shooting. It became the only film Lee made in Hong Kong and the only one in his second language of Cantonese. Despite the process, the film went on to be a critical success, and Lee was nominated for a Hong Kong Film Award for Best New Performer in the role. Oh, wow. It also enjoyed success at the 1987 Cannes Film Festival and was a commercial success in Japan. Oh, very nice. Right. So like like struggled to get there, but had some reward out of it. Right. Exactly. It took the whole village, but we made it. And maybe he didn't enjoy the process, but I I hope he got to enjoy at least some accolades. And in, just kind of in the concept of work. There, everyone has some point in their life where they don't like the job that they're working. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Or but if like you can boss. make it to the end. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if you can make it to the end and have an outcome like that, usually that makes it worth it because it's in your past, but you're something that you're proud of. Right. Exactly. We came together, even though it was hard, and we made a thing. You know, I like Mm -hmm. that. I love that, actually. That's art. That's creating. That's theater. That's movies. That's this podcast, you know. And yeah, everything goes through that stage at some point or another. Yeah. Yeah. And, And the thing was, even with that whole process, Lee continued to have success as a working actor. And in 1988, Brandon picked up another role in an episode of the American television series O'Hara starring Pat Morita who our listeners may know as Mr. Miyagi of the Karate Kid. Oh, yeah. Lee's episode was titled, What's in a Name? And Brandon was to be the main villain, the son of a Yakuza, or an organized crime fighter. Jeff Imada also worked in on this episode as the stunt coordinator, and he recommended that Lee turn down the show due to the nature of the character. However, Brandon disagreed and saw it as a chance to expand his acting to his acting range. Which I, I can understand that with his ultimate goal of not wanting to be like his father in movies. Yeah. yeah. This was a step in the direction he wanted to take to mm-hmm. be different. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. During the 90s, Lee worked on a movie that was it was poorly received and generally panned by critics, but Brandon had other interests as well. In the 1980s, Lee again started to train with Dan Inosanto. Inosanto said Lee would bring a camera to the training facilities to see which techniques would look good on screen. Which, what an awesome idea. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is, that, like, that's a big difference of just training versus the visuals. And that's kind of more stuntman. I know. Isn't that smart? Like, that, I... He's just a working actor looking to improve how he's seen in film, and I couldn't have more respect for that. Absolutely. Like, that is such a good idea. And around this time, he was also still getting noticed around town. Margaret Loesch, CEO of Marvel in the 1980s, had a meeting with Brandon and his mother at the behest of the legendary comic book writer Stan Lee. No relation. (laughs) Yeah, but also someone else who's incredibly well known. Oh, I have a little I have a little offshoot story about it. Okay. <laughs> Stan Lee felt Brandon would be ideal in the role of superhero Shang Chi in a film or television adaptation. In a slight diversion, I happen to love comic books and I grew up learning to draw from reading them. And Stan Lee was always sort of this, like, visionary world maker to me. And his sign-off, Excelsior, or Onward, in its societal meaning, is one that I've used myself on emails before. Oh, really? So, yes. Especially when it's the end of something big. Uh, I typically end it with that. And to hear that he was so behind this story of Shang-Chi in the 90s makes me so happy. Because for reference, Shang-Chi was made into a movie, but not until 2021. I'll say that names, I'm I'm not huge into comic books. I didn't grow up with them like you did. But I'm like, that name sounds familiar. That, That was a recent one. Yes, just released in 2021, it starred the dreamy Simu Liu as Shang-Chi, but it took decades for the story of an Asian superhero to be represented in our cinema. Wow, that's crazy that that could have happened 30 years ago and didn't. Right, exactly. While we never got to see Brandon Lee as Shang-Chi, there was another role that we would never see him in. In April of 1991, Brandon was under consideration by Universal Pictures to play his father in the biopic Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, released in 1993. I wonder how he felt about that. You're about to find out, because he turned the role down as he found it awkward portraying his own father and strange to approach his own parents' romance. Oh yeah, that'd that'd be bizarre. Fair. I was gonna say. That's pretty fair. Yeah. And well, even if he did want to follow in his father's footsteps and do more roles like his father, that could still be very awkward and emotional to play him. Yeah. Portraying your own father. That, you know, there's like, it's different that if you're like in the same genre as your father, like you might be interested in that, but like actually playing them in a story that's. 
it, I can see why he would be uncomfortable. And Mark, dear listener, that he turned them down because the producer, <laughs> Rafaela De Laurentiis, said Brandon, quote, did not look Chinese enough. And that she would have refused to work on the production if they had to resort to making Brandon appear more Asian. Well, that sounds like a lofty person disagreeing with any makeup effects to make Brandon appear, quote, more Asian. I would like to draw attention to the fact that she, a white woman, said Bruce Lee's son did not look Chinese enough. Yeah, that's where I'm stuck up on is like, okay, I understand not wanting to enhance through makeup, but... But you're kidding me. That, that's an absolute insult at the same time, because... It's extreme. Of anyone insulting. who is qualified enough, it is him. There's it's, obviously a lot of other things in between there that brings him to that choice to turn it down. Right. But that could also be a beautiful message that he could play as his father... If he felt like the story was right and it fit him. Right. And also just it's uncool to the max. You should never sit in judgment of anyone else's ethnicity or background, particularly if you are trying to honor their family with a film. Exactly. Also, just in general, though, don't police people's identities. Even if you're a movie producer. And once again. Brandon turned them down. So it doesn't matter what you think, Miss Producer. Yeah, it doesn't. This was the 90s, though. And the whole point would be moot here, as Brandon did turn it down. And it did go to Jason Scott Lee. Again, no relation. Apparently, Delorent has steamed him as looking Chinese enough. There's no quote from her, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Well, like, I do understand to the extent of, like, getting basic similarities to look for a role. Like, you, when you cast a role, you do have to look at people's looks. But I don't think her statements are fitting here. I don't think she's looking at the right thing. Jason Lee was intimidated by the role of the legend, but Brandon helped him overcome his fears. According to Jason, Brandon told him in regard to the role, quote, He said, I wouldn't survive in this part if I treated his father like a god. He said his father was, after all, a man who had a profound destiny, but he was not a god. He was a man who had a temper, a lot of anger, who found mediocrity offensive. Sometimes he was rather merciless, end quote. That is a fantastic quote. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that in, in any ge- general, like, celebrity fandom, that sort of thing should be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. you worship somebody so much, they're still a human being. They still go home at the end of the day and, like, need to do laundry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like... And another great thing is the director, Rob Cohen, was also said to have spent hours communicating with Brandon during preparation for this movie. It's nice that he is in support of it. Right. Enough to to have those conversations, but doesn't want to act in it, but wants to see it happen still. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
In August of 1992, Lee continued his American movie success with Rapid Fire, directed by Dwight H. Little. Lee's character is Jake Lowe, and he witnesses a murder and is put into the Witness Protection Program. Little had been convinced of Brandon's star power after seeing his earlier project Legacy of Rage. He saw Lee as a leading man. Lee was heavily involved in the story development of Rapid Fire and was said to connect with the plot point where his, where his character loses his father. Imada was working as the film's stunt coordinator and witnessed Lee bring a book of work by his father to emotionally prepare for the scene where the character loses his dad. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he was just a very passionate actor, very, you know, trying to capture the moment. I I have so much respect for it. Kind of like a more method in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Both Lee and Imada are credited for the fight choreography in the film, and the fighting style contains elements of Lee's father's Jeet Kune Do style. Lee was also allowed to add touches of humor to the script, which it was said that he did. Brandon said that he wanted to keep the character's, quote, sarcastic edge, so he's not just becoming Joe action hero, end quote. Which, those are always, like, the most fun, in my opinion, is you're watching an action movie, but you get some good chuckles out of it. Exactly. Exactly. And in the U.S., the movie debuted at number three in the box office. Most critics didn't like the film, but it was noted that they liked Lee's charisma. Despite that, in 1992, Lee signed a three-picture deal with 20th Century Fox and a multi-picture deal with Carol Co. Pictures. As we mentioned, Brandon had no interest in the action genre. He wanted to pursue more dramatic roles and create his own legacy. He would soon be given the part that he felt would do just that for his career. And that is where we will leave it for today with Brandon's star on the rise and a film role that would drive him forward to his destiny in American film and as a cursed man. Oh, I'm excited for the next episode because this is where I know Mm. a little bit more. Yeah. Um, Most of this background stuff I was very unfamiliar with um, because, like I said, I've I've never watched a Bruce Lee movie in full, um, Mm -hmm. and I just didn't know a lot of that history. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to Have You Heard About This Case? If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can find us on Instagram at Have You Heard About This Case Pod. You can find us on TikTok at HYHATC. Or you can email us at Have You Heard About This Case at gmail.com. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>